for me, it's a gold mine. I go there, purchase a six flex for 350,000. The year after it's worth 700. Hey, it's JP. Hi, it's Excel. And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. I have with me today, Medrick Pomerleau, who is an investor and a founder of the management company, uh, Group Success Immobilier, is that it? Success Group Immobilier. Okay. And um, it's a bit of a treat. Uh, Medrick uh, describes himself as somebody kind of low key, but who invests uh, in, in, I think we're going to tell in Quebec anyway, you're going to tell me a little bit more specifically about your business model. So, Mirik, tell me about your journey through life that led you to be sitting here with me today. What uh, yeah. what got you started? So, I'd like to firstly mention I, I'm actually not the founder of the management company, but I became a pat- partner from uh, uh, discussions and, and whatnot. But uh, the founder is actually one of my partners. We basically my life story uh, at the age of uh, 18, I left to Europe because I felt very lost, solo tripped over there for uh, give or take five or six months. And coming back from uh, that trip, I decided to launch myself and really focus in, in real estate. Begun that journey as a real estate broker. So uh, as, as of 18 years old, I joined Engel & Valkers, which is a high-end luxury firm. And what we did is I developed the entire North Shore of Montreal. So in part, it was a brand new firm that came to Montreal and I was the representative for the North Shore and selling homes that have $500,000 value and up. Obviously, if we're talking about this market now, I think all homes have almost the $500,000 value. But back back in 2016, uh, it, it was a different story. From there... Brokerage for me was my stepping stone to creating a network in real estate. It was never something I necessarily wanted to pursue on a very long term. And so after creating my network over a period of about a year and a half, two years in in the domain and and learning how to do transactions, negotiate, getting clients, you know, working hard door to door, getting some some new clients, I started to wholesale uh, actually offers. So. I would make offers and through my network, sell them to investors and uh, accomplished, I think, uh, uh, fair, fair enough of, of wholesaling in, in order for me to live during that one year that I did it. And uh, beginning of 2019, uh, I, I went in full time as an investor, which basically started prospecting properties uh, and it took me one year to buy a property. Actually, So it was a long, long process. But that's because, surprisingly enough, my first purchase was actually commercial and office buildings. Um, and a lot of people don't start in that industry of, uh, of real estate or that sphere of real estate because it is, I guess, more complicated to understand. It's a bit what I compare as if you compare multi-res to commercial and industrial, well, it's, it's a bit of a jungle because you don't have leases written for you. You got to go see a a lawyer and it's 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 b2b uh negotiation so it's not a b2c where you have a client that comes in signs a lease leases it for a year this is a very a longer process of renting a property and ended up buying it in right in covid so not the greatest acquisition but we did what we had to do during that process and uh, we actually refinanced that project and made 
$250,000 profit. So it, it went super well, even if it was during COVID and we had a hard time finding tenants and also negotiating with the government and, um, you know, because all the governmental aids for the, um, for the property, uh, for the business owners was, was actually very important for them or else it was bankruptcy and they were leaving. And starting in 2021, end of 2021, after my first acquisition, we, when everything actually went super well with the commercial building, I met up with my partner who is actually the, the founder of Solutions Succès Groupe Immobilier, and we partnered up to, to become better and grow. And uh, we had very similar values, very similar objectives, and we decided to create a partnership and from there build an entire team. Um, so we have a lot of things currently that are in-house. So that allows us to reduce enormous amounts of costs in order to then be able to find projects that are on the market, but some people that don't have the in-house kind of material, construction, management, uh, you name it, we have everything in-house. Well, it allows us to really be extremely creative with properties that are in the market and to find strategies in order to to refinance them quick. So we're talking projects of maximum 12 months. And so our team is, um, we're five individuals, one that does strictly everything that is in field with management uh, of the tenants. We have uh, uh, another partner who uh, strictly takes care of all construction, service calls, and renovations of properties. We have someone who takes care of taking an accepting offer and bringing it all the way to the notary. So he's a transactional partner who basically does the everything that's in between evaluation, inspection, et cetera. I do everything that is investment relationship and also a strategy partner. So I find strategies in different uh, spheres of the operations. And we have our last partner who is everything that is backend systems. So management systems, uh, Excel, Dropbox, uh, a bit of administration as well, obviously. Data receiving data and, and to put it into a system in order for us to calculate precisely ball. It costs us X amount of dollars to renovate the 300 square foot uh, apartment. So we have all this data reconciliation, I think is what it's called. And he takes care of all that backend systematic stuff. It's not my strength and uh, it's his strength. So, and, and everyone on our team has their roles and responsibilities and has their strengths and their weaknesses. And that's why we've decided to, hey, instead of doing it alone, let's just set a bigger objective for our team that will fit with everyone's objective. And let's do it together because we're limited with time. Obviously, we live and we die eventually, and we only have 24 hours in a day. But if we have five partners, well, that 24 hours could be split within five people. And it allows us to not only have more time for ourselves, but have more times to do different projects sometimes, have more times to manage our kids if we have kids or do other things that, that gives us the possibility of doing that. And it brings us closer to our objective in the sense that by building a team, we're able to also have a lot of things in-house and be able to create very nice projects. So mm -hmm. that's currently, we, we've exploded very quickly from the end of 2021. We, uh, we manage uh, 220 units currently and own 220 units. So that's, uh, that's where we are currently. And, and by the end of the month, we're going to be at actually 240 because we're in the process of notarizing uh, 
two new properties that will give us the uh, the extra units. So very big growth, but with a very well structured business and with uh, a lot of different partners with a lot of strengths. And so it allows us to grow quickly. Okay. But so let's, I'm going to ask you some more questions about like how to put together yeah. that team, because ultimately we're trying to create content that's going to, you know, help our listeners um, implement some of these things themselves. But sure. I want to just finish with your own personal story first. So, I mean, what lights went off in your head to say, I'm not going to make my life as a broker, but I'd rather be an investor. Because I think a lot of people, when they get interested in real estate, their first reaction actually is, let me be a broker. Right. So what's helped you? What 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 light bulbs went off in your head to make that transition? Yeah. So there are three main things. First off, my parents are very hardworking people, working 10 to 12 hours a day easily. And since I was young, I, and they're uh, entrepreneurs, but they're self-employed. So, and being a broker is being self-employed. You don't have someone who tells you what to do or how to do it, but you've got to put in the work in order to make it a, a successful business. But seeing my parents work those big hours, being the lazy person that I am, I didn't want to work the 12, 15 hours. And that was something that also pushed me to say, hey, I want to find something that allows me to work let's say five, six, seven hours a day, but to also accumulate something that will last a long period of time. So the second thing was, okay, let me build something today so that in 10 years, five years, six years, depends how fast you grow, allows me to live from it without necessarily having to put that enormous amount of work. And the third thing actually is that I, I don't like being self-employed because you are quote unquote a slave to yourself. Because if you stop working today, well, tomorrow there's no revenue coming in. And so I've always had a mentality where I would tell myself, okay, well, if I'm going to work this hard, I need something that when I stop working, I'm able to still keep growing. And so that those are the three main things. Uh, first, my parents. Secondly, uh, being self-employed for me was buying myself a job, which I didn't want, and also creating something that would last a lifetime. Mm -hmm. So really like the kind of getting out of the active income trap and the building wealth as opposed to earning money. Yeah, I think exactly. that's a very, very apropos. And then take me to the next inflection point. So you decide you're going to be an investor. You start out, I, I assume, on your own doing your first deal on the office building. And now you're in this business model that, like, I mean, it sounds to me well-structured and we'll get onto that in the next phase. But then you become sort of a team player. Mm. And what happened in your mind to say, I'm going to go from being a solo investor to I'm going to be a member of this team that works in another way? Because I think, you know, it, on people's investments paths, like people kind of pick one way or the other, either they end up doing this kind of solo thing, or maybe they have joint venture partners, but ultimately they're the main, the main man or woman. And then you yeah. have people who like build out teams and go that route. So what made you pick that? Very simply that I've always believed that, yes, it, first it, it depends on your objectives right off the bat, because if you have an objective that you want, let's say 1000 units or you want a hundred million, let's say you work in commercial or industrial, you want a hundred million dollars 
of real estate value. Well, $100 million, you'll never reach that alone. You will have to build a team no matter what. Eventually, even if it's just employees, that team is there. And without your employees, well, humans are your business. And so nonetheless, I needed to create that team because my objectives were very, very, very big. Our objectives right now is 4,000 units, which is give or take $350 million of real estate in the areas that we work in. And I was never going to be able to do that alone. I could have settled for, let's say, 100 units solo and be like, I'm going to be fine. So it really depends on your objectives. I think if you're looking to make, I don't know, $50,000 a year when you stop working because you have X amount of units that give you X amount of cash flow on a monthly basis, well, then your objectives in creating a team is maybe not the best option for you because that will reduce your amount of cash flow on, on a monthly basis. But if you have bigger objectives, it's inevitable that eventually you'll have to build yourself a team. And so that's where uh, I think the infliction point for me, the reflection was, okay, well, my objectives are very big. I'm not going to do it alone. It's going to take up too much of my time. It's going to it's going to really um, bother me because I have my own hobbies and I, I like to travel and I want to be able to do that. And so my best option is to make a team that will lead me to those goals. Even if I get a smaller percentage of it, it'll still give me what I want and what we want collaboratively. But so why? So, I mean, I'm curious about this because to be t totally transparent, I went the other route, right? Like I'm the uh -huh. one who, you know, will be happy with a hundred units and yeah. will rather be the captain of my own ship. And so why set a bigger objective like that, knowing that you're going to have a piece of the pie and not the whole pie? Because I think that's a, it's a different journey. Like why, 100%. why set those big objectives and why say to yourself, I want a piece of that pie as a, as opposed to, I want the whole smaller pie. Yeah. In my mind, I've always been someone that wants to give a lot more than I get. And I think that plays a role because not everyone on my team has the same experience that I have. And, and I don't have the same experience as they have. Some have better experiences in different domains. But for me, it was building something where when I do get to my objective, well, I'm not alone there, you know? I have a family that I created, a team that, I, that, that we built, and, and that we're all there together. And I think that's something that, that plays a very big role in my mind where I'm a very family-oriented person. And to be able to grow quickly and, and grow a business to that size, but having to work a lot less for me made a lot more sense. Well, even a hundred units solo is, is a lot of work. It's heavy. And for me, having 200 units in a team, it's actually, you know, we all have our own share of work to do. We have less shares, yes, but we all make sufficient amount of money to survive and live. And so... It was more in the sense that, as I mentioned before, I'm lazy. I don't like to work. I want to work four hours a week if I can. And so by building this team, by building this structure, I was able to tell myself, okay, well, everyone will have five, six, seven, ten hours a week to work. But at least I won't have to put the 50, 60, 70 alone. And I think that's where it comes to. And also to be able to build wealth as a family for me meant a lot. And that's why I went towards that route. Okay. Um, and now uh, tell me so a little bit more kind of hands-on. I don't know if how, how um, 
you know, uh, at ease you are with divulging kind of operations, but I'm assuming you guys invest in Montreal. What areas do you like and what's your business model? Uh, we, we hate Montreal. Okay. So tell me about uh, what you like. <laughs> so, so Montreal for us was interesting, but difficult. Our business model is to create value on a very short term period of time. And in Montreal, you need giant down payments to create somewhat of a decent value because properties are extremely high. They may go down very shortly because there's a lot of things moving around, but it was difficult in the sense that it didn't fit our business model. We have investors where we can guarantee 100% return in 12 months. But in Montreal, it's very difficult to do that because properties are already very high in value and the the gap between the plus value and, and what you, you purchase at is much smaller than, for example, the areas we work in, which is uh, L'Estrie, which is basically uh, everything that is Sherbrooke, Magog, and Montérégie, which is Granby, um, and a little bit of the South Shore, but not, not huge, it's really more far off towards Granby, uh, Bromont, for example, uh, Callensville, these, these little cities that have very big gaps of plus value. And our second biggest sector of operation is, is Three Rivers. <laughs> yeah. And those. so tell me about those submarkets. Like what allows you to go and uh, squeeze some extra juice there that in Montreal is not possible? Yeah. So uh, these, these submarkets through a fairly simple analysis, I mean, if, if you take, for example, New York City, when New York City became extremely saturated, people naturally started going further and further from the city, right? Now, we're talking a much larger scale of, of, you know, we're talking an hour, an hour and a half away, but these areas all have specific things in common. Uh, universities and hospitals. That's very important to figure out in your area because universities will bring enormous turnover, first off, because a lot of students live in your, in your, tenant, uh, in your, in your buildings. And that turnover allows us to get the maximum amount of value in, in the rent that, that we could potentially go get. What we realized analyzing rental markets and also plus value markets is that a secondary market is much less affected from a recession in terms of cap rate. And so if we look today in comparison to a year ago, which cap rates in Montreal were maybe three, sometimes even two and a half, we're extremely low. Currently today, we're looking at a four, three and a half, five in the, in the area of, of Montreal. So in comparison to, for example, Three Rivers, where last year we had 5.25 cap rate. This year we have 5.15 cap rate. So it didn't change anything. Actually, the cap rate went down. And so for us, that analysis allowed us to kind of say, okay, well, on top of it, not many people understand what Three Rivers value is for me. It's a gold mine. I go there, purchase a six flex for three hundred and fifty thousand. The year after, it's worth seven hundred. I double the value, and so that creates enormous amounts of liquidity for us to keep going and keep the the, the wheel rolling because of the, the the profits that we pull out constantly. So it's an analysis of figuring out well, okay, what markets are going to stay solid during a recession. What markets have that plus value that we can go get right now? And what markets have a very big difference between 
actual rents when we purchase and the rents that we can go get. And a lot of times in these areas, it's older people that own it. And they've owned it for 15, 20, 30 years and they have done nothing to the rents and are kind of out of the game where they don't necessarily try to go juice all the, all the, the value from the property and the rent. So, for example, if we purchase a property in, in Three Rivers or Sherbrooke and the rents are at on average 600, we know that easily we'll get 700, 800 or 900, depending on the size of the units. So there's a very big upside potential in these areas that we have found very interesting to have our model succeed on a short-term basis. Enjoying the episode so far? Have you really been listening to the episode or has your monkey mind been taking you off in one direction or another? Our mental habits can be our biggest assets or our biggest liabilities as we pursue certain goals. For me, the biggest performance gains have always come from training my mind. In my book, Mindful Landlord, I talk about how you can train your mind and how you can apply some of these strategies to your journey in the real estate field. The book is available on Amazon and also on its website, mindfullandlord.com. Now I'll stop evangelizing for the power of mental training and let you get back to the show. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, the, uh, the value of secondary markets. And I mean, so you, you alluded to something which I want to kind of poke at because, you know, we're, we're in an interesting, we are in an interesting inflection point now as a, you know, as a country, as a, as a sub market where, you know, interest rates are increasing dramatically. Prices have maybe not come down sufficiently to be in line with the carrying cost of debt service. So, and, and in addition, capital crunch, because maybe projects are, you know, liquidating at a slower rate. Do you have any advice for people who want to continue to stay active in these current conditions? I would say, I think vendors are becoming more creative. And so it's your responsibility as a buyer to also become more creative. We currently are closing all our projects with balance of sales and it works fantastic. Mm-hmm. So if, if your down payment was 200,000 a year ago and it's now 300,000, the vendor understands it. And I think if you decently well explain it, you could probably go get that difference in a balance of sale. Mm-hmm. Obviously the banks are not so keen to a balance of sales. So you got to be a little creative in how you structure it, but you could, you could definitely be more creative with vendors and in your negotiations. That's one thing. Secondly, I'd say try to look at areas that you've never looked at because there are some areas that are very interesting and still have enormous amounts of potential. And people are, are not keen to say, oh, well, it's an hour away from my house. Yes, maybe it's an hour away from your house. But if you purchase something five minutes from your house that makes you 50000 in one year, but something an hour away that makes you 200000 well, which investment is better for the risk and the investment that you're putting? So base yourself off of that. I think the opportunities are still there. Obviously, the turnover is much longer. Inventory is staying on the market for a very long period of time, but that allows for very creative negotiations. And so I think creativity and trying to look at things maybe you didn't look at before and you didn't open your mind to is something that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, good advice. Tell me something. And the carrying costs don't scare you? Because I think one of the other fears is, yes, you can negotiate a balance of sale, but at a time when you know, maybe resale value and refinancing uh, in a two to three year time horizon, whatever it is, is a bit more uncertain. So you don't know, like your exit strategy, 
the visibility on the exit strategy might be a little bit less clear now than it was two years ago. So you're not afraid, let's say, to have a debt to the bank, a, a balance of sale to the vendor, and to not necessarily know at what speed or at what price you're going to be able to liquidate or refinance a year from now? That doesn't scare you? Personally, no. Why? Well, first off, we can eliminate the fact that I'm, I'm planning on selling. We don't sell. So we, we buy to refinance. Study the new programs from the CMHC. They are going to save you in refinancing. We are utilizing them enormously currently, and we are getting exactly what we want. It does not even change from last year. Yeah, we have a bigger debt, sure. But it keeps us going in the sense that this program, so we have energy efficiency program, we have uh, affordability program, and we have um, accessibility. But accessibility is for retirement homes. You, you won't necessarily touch that if you're just investing in multi-res or, or in commercial for that, for that matter. I, I would say you study them very, very carefully because there are some very interesting loopholes and there are some very interesting things that you can do with those programs in order to have that exit strategy planned out before you even purchase. And so for us, it doesn't scare us because those programs came into play and those programs allow us a lot more freedom. So instead of, for example, if I use the energy efficiency of a building, well, it's quite interesting because instead of renovating 10 apartments out of 12, what I'll do is I'll renovate my windows, I'll do my roof, I'll do my insulation, and I'll get my, my points for my efficiency, energy efficiency. And then what I'll do is instead of in renovating 10 apartments, I'll renovate three, boost their value, but with my energy efficiency, be able to go refinance and get exactly what I wanted. And so it's just being a little bit more creative and trying to find what works and what doesn't in the sense that these programs are actually there and are very helpful. And I think those are, are, are very interesting things to look at. Affordability for us is almost a no brainer because where we buy, I mean, everything's affordable. Even if we go max out the value of our, of our rental uh, capacity, it still falls under the, the, the average. So affordability for us is like, oh, well, in 10 years, maybe it's not going to be affordable. But right now, we don't mind using it because the average of our rents are so low either way that it fits in the criterias. So I think it really depends. In Montreal, it becomes a little complicated. I think in Montreal, you should be looking at energy efficiency because that's where you'll get a lot of value. So if you, re if you finance initially at 70%, which honestly right now is very rare, uh, if you finance at 70% and you do some renovations for energy efficiency, well, next year you'll refinance at 85, 90, depending on, so you'll go get your 15, 20% and you'll, you'll be able to take what you need to keep going and, and to keep investing. So I think that that would be my best advice to study those programs very thoroughly because they are interesting and they do give you a, a very interesting exit strategy. Mm -hmm. Great, um, Mitterick. I think this is like really good value for for our listeners. I know I'm uh, learning something and, and I think you have a good way of putting things concisely. I have time for one more question. Normally we would stop yeah. at about 30 minutes. I just want you to tell me a little bit about, you know, building out your team, because it sounds like this is part of your business model that you're very proud of. And I know like some people have a tendency to like shy away from partnerships because uh -huh. things can go south pretty quick. You know, it like works well when it works well. And when it's bad, it's awful. So yeah. 
tell me, you know, what is your thinking? What was your thinking going in? And uh, what's your secret sauce when it comes to collaborating effectively? I'd say it comes down to one word and that's values. Your values need to be aligned with your partner's values and the, the commitment and sacrifice that you're willing to make, your partner needs to be willing to make them as well. So if your values do not align, don't get into the partnership because down the road, it's not going to figure, it's not going to function. So I think if you concentrate on strictly making, let's say five, five values that are truly important to you, well, don't negotiate those values. Make sure that your partner has the exact same values and then try to organize some sort of an objective that you guys fit with as well. So I think values, objectives, commitment, and, and, and priorities are, are extremely important. And so how do you do that? I mean, let's say I'm considering, you know, getting involved with two people that I kind of know, but I don't have a like, you know, solid business relationship with, because when you start, you know, really investing with people, you learn things about them that you don't know, even if let's say, you know, they were your best friend at the gym for five years. Right. Uh -huh. So like, what did you do? You, I mean, do you actually do that? Do you sit down and write your five values on paper and write your objectives on paper? Like what's your process to kind of, um, you know, date your partners before you get involved in something more serious so radical transparency and radical honesty to literally sit down in front of the person and tell them hey this is not negotiable for me can you match this and if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out that's what i would say just be radic radically transparent with them and radically honest with them and from there you'll be able to see their true colors and tell them exactly the same thing i want you to tell me what your honesty is and what your transparency is. And from there, you'll, you'll be able to kind of align yourself and maybe look, do one project where you're co-owners, but don't have one holding together, separate holdings and try to manage one project together. And if it functions well, and your values are still the same throughout that one project, then try to see if you can move forward with more projects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And tell me, I mean, I'm, I'm curious in, in your experience, when you have those like radically honest conversations with people, does that always attract the same thing on the other side? Or have you had people maybe not be either not necessarily manipulative? Cause I think that truly manipulative people are actually like kind of rare, but people who are maybe not so lucid about what their own, not so lucid when looking in the mirror, right? Like, have you had experiences where, where what comes back is not a hundred percent what you get in my current partnership? No. Uh, I've had partnerships in the past that, yes, obviously, it, it's a constant work in progress in the sense that our partners, we have meetings every single week and we talk to each other every single day. And in our meetings, it's very important that everyone brings their points to the tables and that even if it's going to hurt someone or you feel like it's attacking somebody, you've got to do it. Because if it's not brought to the table, well, that's where it creates conflict long term. You keep it inside, you bottle it up, bottle up, you have to do it. Even if you're scared that it may hurt the person in front of you, at the end of the day, even if he's your friend, business is business. And you have to be able to do that and separate business from friendship or business from family. And, and that's what's important. So right now in our current state, no, we bring everything to the table, even if it may really hurt somebody. All right. Well, Medirik, thank you so much for sharing this time with me. It's been a, it's been a fun adventure, and I know I've uh, I've learned some stuff. Where can people get in touch with you if they want to reach out? I mean, I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn. It's my name, Medirik Palmerlow. You'll you'll find me there, and Facebook. So that's that's where I think is the best way to to reach me for sure. All right, thank you, Medirik. Awesome. Thank you very much. 
Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.